My mother had eyes in the back of her head. I heard that and thought about it throughout childhood. I'm not a mother. I don't have eyes in the back of my head. I do know that I am a force and that I create a wake. Think about a speedboat, a ship, with that V of water behind it. I'm aware that I have a wake. Sometimes I can pause during my headlong forward movement and look back and check my wake. What kind of impact did I have? Was it the intended impact or unexpected? A kind, warm reflection of my wake from a trusted friend, colleague, coach, mentor is priceless. That's reactive after the fact. Proactively looking forward. I'm a change agent, an activist, a reformer, and a patient. No matter how full of myself I can become, I seldom lose sight of the need for coaching. Coaching to clarify strategy, consider and prioritize tactics, and then look back and study the wake I created, the impact I had. I view my health team as coaches with expertise greater than mine for specific topics and skills. And I'm the boss, the CEO of my health, but I definitely need coaches. I noticed today's guest, Sherry Ben-Arzi, in the participant list while attending an online webinar about making clinical decisions hosted by a mutual friend. Talia Myron Schatz, a researcher at Ono Academy College in Tel Aviv. I saw Siri's name and looked her up on LinkedIn and connected. She had a medical coaching practice. We communicated on LinkedIn at first and decided to interview each other. Neither of us is shy. Siri's vision is to facilitate change in the medical system through medical coaching and communication skills adherence, resilience, and medical leadership training. She is the recipient of the ICF Ireland's Medical Coach Award of 2016 and Coach Supervisor Award of Welcome to Health Hats, the podcast. I'm Danny Van Leeuwen, a two-legged cisgender old white man of privilege who knows a little about a lot of health care and a lot about very little. We will listen and learn about what it takes to adjust to life's realities in the awesome circus of health care. Let's make some sense of all of this. Would you please introduce yourself? I'm okay. so glad you're here. I'm so glad to be here. Okay. <laughs> so my name is uh, Shiri Benarti, and I was born in Israel, raised in Liberia, and then slipped back to Israel. So I can say I'm an Israeli. And 
I have been living with a chronic condition called pulmonary hypertension for a little bit over 20 years. And wow. in addition to that, I am also a medical coach, have been a medical coach since 2008. Wow. So, That's yep. a long time. That's a lot of stuff. So yes. this again, here's a none of my business question that you do not Go have to it. answer. How was being pregnant and having pulmonary hypertension? That sounds tough. It wasn't. It wasn't. Okay. okay? Because I, I have to rewind and say something about my attitude. Okay. The kind of patient that I am. Okay. And I am a bitchy fuck you patient. <laughs> okay. Meaning. Yes. I have an attitude of you don't get to tell me what to do. Mm-hmm. We are going to have a conversation about that. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to let you know what I think. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to do it together because I am not your patient. Mm-hmm. You and I are members on the same team, you know, okay. of the same team. Mm-hmm. And basically I'm your boss. Mm-hmm. Like I hired you. So that's mm-hmm. the attitude. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So I, at some point I decided that, I was going to be a mother. I just knew that inside. Now I have to say this. For me, there is an, a very distinct experience where I know something about me. And when, and it's, I feel it in my body. It's the certainty. And the first thing I do is I do some research, just make sure that I'm not completely out there in La La Land. And once I do my research and that feeling becomes stronger, then I will fight for it. So I had this feeling. So I had this feeling about pregnancy. A, I knew I wanted to be a mother mm-hmm. and I knew I could be a mother. So then I came to my doctor and said, okay, I want to get pregnant. And he looked at me and said, nope. And I said, that's not acceptable. So here's what we're going to do. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go I'm going to go and do some research and you and I are going to have another conversation about that and it's not going to be a conversation about can I or mm-hmm. am I allowed to get pregnant but how we're going to approach this. Okay. And then I saw another American doctor and I have to say something about American doctors that I know. Mm-hmm. They are very polite mm-hmm. but and proper and but you see what they feel because I I saw this another American doctor and I said I want to get pregnant and he had this huge smile and he was like yeah. And I could see in his eyes. It was like, oh my God, you crazy woman. Don't. So I did a lot of research. I contacted a lot of doctors around the world. The statistics were not good. I was aware of that. I read the literature and then I came back to my doctor and said, okay, I get why you said no. However, what needs to happen for you to say, yes, let's look into that. Mm-hmm. And he said, okay, I need you to be stable for longer. I need us to have this conversation another year. I need you to show these, these parameters. I need this and this. I said, okay, I'm on it. A year later, I came back and I said, okay, let's have this conversation again. So to make a long story short, at some point he said, yes, and a list of conditions, which made sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I said, okay, I'm going to work with that. Mm-hmm. And yep, yeah, and that's how we started. So it was crazy. I think everybody around me, my husband at the time, my parents, my doctor, everybody was pretty stressed. But I had I had confidence. I love it. Good for you. <laughs> Good for you. 
And I can and picture it. I have to tell you, 38 weeks into the pregnancy, I lost my confidence and I knew something was wrong. And oh. that's when I hospitalized myself. Okay. And I was not wrong. I was right to hospitalize myself. Okay, so when you and I were communicating before, one of the things you were talking about was the holding the identity and experience of being a health consumer patient and a professional healthcare practitioner, Mm -hmm. identity and experience together. And so you seem, you're that really strong advocate for yourself. Mm -hmm. And you bring that to your work of as a coach. Mm -hmm. And I found when I was thinking about that question, sometimes I feel like that being a nurse for 45 years really hasn't done anything for me as far as being a patient or a caregiver. And I definitely, I've got the language down. I'm, I'm the Rosetta Stone of healthcare and I can speak and whatever at any level. That's what, I, that's the health hats business yeah. that I have. So I have that gift, but I don't like study about myself almost at all. I'm more of a passive asserter in the sense that If I don't like the physician, I just leave. I'll find somebody else. You know what I mean? I don't really. Yeah, I know. I'm not a fighter. Now, on the other hand, this work, I am an advocate and an activist sort of system wide. Mm -hmm. But you're sounding like your professional and personal selves live together. They live side by side. So it's really important for me when I am putting my coaching hat on. Mm -hmm. It's really important for me to self-manage because what works for me might not work for my client. So it's not about, I did this that way, and this is how I dealt with a similar situation. So let's learn from that. That's not professional. Okay. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm totally with you on that. I've said to people, your experience in a buck fifty will buy you a Pepsi. It's the yes, it's experience. And that experience is really important, but it's not sufficient. No, it's not. So when I created the medical coaching model, it was important for me to put together a methodology that could hold a process and didn't need my experience. At all. Didn't even need me. Okay. However, so I managed doing that. When I am coaching someone, there are certain clients that I do not coach because I know self-managing is going to be almost impossible. So I don't coach people with pulmonary hypertension. I will sit and have a (laughs) cup of coffee with them. No charge. I will tell them about my experience. I will be very coach-like with them. And also because... In Israel, my story has been in the magazines, and I, yes. I was, I was, I was, I participated in in, in you know, TV shows and stuff like that. So, people know my story. What kind of patient are you? It's like when you meet the system. Yeah. What happens to you? I'm a I'm a relationship builder. Mm-hmm. I 
And when you say the system, you mean the medical system. The medical, yeah. Yeah. I'm a relationship builder. So I look for professionals on my team that appreciate me and my quirks and Mm -hmm. are accessible. Mm. So you asked a question um, about where illness's narrative meets the clinical narrative. Yeah. So I, I like that question because I think that the clinicians that I stick with are ones that marry the story and the clinical. And they're curious about the story. And they're good at pulling out stuff. So, for example, and listeners, if I keep this in and don't edit it out, my first neurologist was very interested that I play this baritone saxophone. And because, you know, he said, you have intercostal involvement, your chest muscles, and you're playing this big horn. So you have to breathe deeply. You have dexterity issues, and you're playing this big horn with heavy keys. And it's creating new pathways in your brain. And it's good for your soul. And he said, I got nothing. I got nothing compared to that. Absolutely nothing. And I just love, and it's, am I still playing the saxophone? Is something we talk about every time. And I like that he was curious about me and took this thing that I love to do and made it into an anchor for the the decisions we need to make about medication and treatment and whatever. Where I think I'm a unique patient mm-hmm. is that is not in the doctor's office. It's that I take care of myself. I have a program and mm-hmm. I stick with it. And I've sticked with it for 12 years. And it gets a tune-up depending on where I am. I have a progressive illness. Mm -hmm. And so things change. They change very slowly, thank goodness, but they change. And so every once in a while, my program needs a tune-up. And But I do the work. Let me ask you something. How did you first start creating this program? The idea of creating a program. I think, I don't know. I've always known that habits that I knew as a nurse, that key to health are habits. Mm -hmm. And the hardest thing about health is habits. So the art of it is creating habits that you just can't. My early nursing was in home care and physical rehabilitation. Mm-hmm. And I learned that the most important habit a human being can have is to move. Yeah. You got to move. You just got to move. And so, so I worked true. with people with spinal cord injuries and strokes and severe arthritis stuck at home and move. 
And so here I was, somebody who, you know, oh my God, something is wrong. And my, my abilities took a hit. Mm-hmm. And slowly took a hit and then more quickly took a hit, but maybe it was more quickly just because I realized it. I knew something was wrong, but then when it got defined and two things I had, I was introduced to an amazing physical therapist and an amazing chiropractor. Mm-hmm. And between the two, like the physical therapist started me on a program, a program of balance, strengthening, and the chiropractor helped me get to do it every other day, not every day. Every day is just, oh, it's just too much. It's too much. And I just feel like every other day, every other day I have a vacation. And so that's possible. And then the, I have 3,500 steps and that every day, 3,500 step minimum. I actually average about 4,400, but I get the 3,500 minimum. And then I'm, and I'm a two cane guy and an electric wheelchair beyond that. Mm-hmm. And, and that I just do because it just feels so good to walk. And I know how important mobility is. I have harder things like diet. Those are harder habits for me. But I don't know. And I I just, I guess I'm a habitual kind of guy. I've been doing a podcast for, I just, this, this, the one I'm doing this week is 117. I've been doing a weekly something before that was blogging. And I think I'm on 486. I'm good at habits. I think we all have habits, are habitual creatures. Yeah. Some more, some less, but yeah. And so how much of your coaching is about habits? A lot of it is is about habits and behaviors. I would say that everything is about behaviors, but I look at internal behaviors and external behaviors, not just the external behaviors of going, coming, lifting, whatever, eating. From a medical coaching perspective, everything is a behavior. An emotion is an internal behavior, thoughts, process, even an illness. Everything is a behavior. So when we look at behaviors and we want to change the behavior, first thing that we do is I invite people to look at the positive intention behind the behavior. Because honestly, I don't think that people say that we have a, a good side and a bad side to us. There is mm-hmm. this, this story about a grand, grandfather telling his grandchild about the white wolf, which is a good wolf, and the black wolf, which is a bad wolf, which is come on, that's a whole other issue, <laughs> black and white, <laughs> good and bad. And they're always fighting inside us. And the grandson asks, which wolf wins? And the grandfather says, the wolf that we feed more. So I don't feel that we have a good wolf and a bad wolf inside us. A, because I love wolves. I think that we have a good wolf and then we might have some misguided wolves, but they originally are good wolves. So even if we have a behavior that's not serving us, underneath that behavior, the origin is positive. There's something good that we want for ourselves. Sometimes it's more conscious, sometimes it's less. So if we want to replace a behavior, we need to honor that original positive intention. Okay? Or else the change is not going to be sustainable. Say that again. It's about replacing a behavior. It's like I have a behavior. I want the new behavior to serve the same positive intention, the old behavior. Would you give an example? Yes. I'll give an example. So I'm going to give an example from a a client that I coached many years ago, and I'm changing a lot of details here. Okay. 
but basically this was a young person and this young person had this behavior that every time this young person felt better with the medication, they would go and do something that would cause them to faint. Okay. Some kind of a behavior did not make sense. Mm-hmm. Okay. And when we spoke, that person, the client said to me, listen, I know that this is causing damage. And the client's doctor called me and said, this is impossible. You need to speak with the client. Da, 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 da. But when we actually investigated this behavior, we realized that the positive intention underneath all of it was actually love. Mm. Isn't that amazing? Mm-hmm. Because this client basically was very lonely. Every time this client felt better, all the family members would go about their business. Thank God the client is feeling better. We don't have to take care of the client anymore. But so that behavior, which causes client to faint, brought all the family back and they could mm-hmm. feel loved and they could love back. Mm-hmm. Okay, they were not lonely anymore. Mm-hmm. And once this client figured it out, I said, okay, so this is actually about love. Can we find another behavior that will allow you to love and be loved? And this client started volunteering in an animal shelter. Mm-hmm. Now, the real mind blower is that once the, this client started volunteering, they stopped the old behavior. Why? Because the need yeah. for love was honored. Okay. Wow, and that's, that's profound. Get, and they didn't get to be wrong because we are not our behaviors. We have behaviors. Yes. Well, that's an interesting story. I like that. How has it helped you? What, the whole behavioral thing? Yeah. Well, first of all, understanding that I am not my behaviors really helped me. Mm -hmm. So I can look at behaviors and ask, are they serving me? And -hmm. if they're not, then I need to to change them. And if I look at my illness as a behavior and I'm not my illness, then I can define health in a different way. Mm -hmm. So from my perspective, health is not the absence of illness. Mm -hmm. Health is a state of mind. When Mm -hmm. I can look in the mirror And I see Shiri and I see the wholeness of Shiri. Mm -hmm. She has pulmonary hypertension, but she also has a child. She's a mother and and, and she's a a partner and she's all of that. And a business person. And And a a business person and Mm -hmm. and a lot of things. Yeah. And I have an illness. I am not my illness. Okay. Then that for me is, that's how it serves me. Yeah. Now a word about our sponsor, Abridge. Use Abridge to record your doctor visit. Push the big pink button and record the conversation. Read the transcript or listen to clips when you get home. Check out the app at abridge.com. A-B-R-I-D-G-E dot com. Or download it on the Apple App Store or Google Play Store. Record your healthcare conversations. Let me know how it went. I come at this differently. Mm. The way I come at it is that I love myself. I love myself. Now, I don't love everything I do. And I, I find having multiple sclerosis to be seriously annoying. Yeah. But loving myself is a, an important hook 
for me the, to, to stay in touch with that. And what are the things? I love myself. I want to keep loving myself. I feel like crap when I don't love myself. Yeah. Another way I think about it is that I'm pathologically optimistic. And when I'm not, my symptoms are this pathological optimism has something to do with love for myself. Definitely. And when I don't, because we're human and we all have ups and downs, that's the human condition, up and down. That's just the Mm -hmm. way it is. I'm really fortunate that my ups and downs are pretty high. Mm. But I still have ups and downs. And when I'm down, uh, my symptoms are worse. Just they are. Well, that's, that's the same for me. Of course. That makes so much sense. Yeah. Okay. So... What is the, what's the story here that we're trying to tell? When I put together an episode, I have wonderful conversations with people. And then I have to think after it's over. And actually, once it's done, I have forgotten it completely. And I'm very fortunate that it's recorded and Mm -hmm. that I have a good transcription app. I read it and listen to it many times, but before I can produce an episode, I have to know what's the story I want to tell. This conversation, you and I, is your story. Mm -hmm. So what's the story? Like what story do you want people to hear, come away with from – all these recorded words. Mm-hmm. Well, I think I think that from my perspective, the story is not about the story. It's about the storyteller. Okay. Yes. If there is one thing I'd like people to take away is the invitation for them to own the story. And become the storytellers and know their own story and do whatever combination that they want between the illness narrative and the clinical narrative. Because this story has so many aspects. You can tell it in so many ways and there's no wrong aspect. Right. I think it's a tapestry and there might be an incomplete aspect when Mm -hmm. you can invite additional it's, it's like voices in a system and all of these voices together create the story. But for me, I think there's one person that can integrate all of these pieces and that's the owner of the story. And the owner of the story is one. That's the patient. Mm -hmm. I think that when we talk about patient empowerment, which is an overused term, uh I think when we look at patients that choose to be advocates and they choose, these are people that, that are owning their story. This is what my illness means to me. And that's where they, that's the starting point. And from there, you go into every direction, the relationship with your medical team and the relationship with your body and the relationship with your illness and how you choose to live your life. And so, but it comes from that. Yeah. It is interesting one of the the gifts that I've had 
is that I, I came from a family of secrets. And so I became allergic to secrets. And so I wear my life on my sleeve. And that has been a very powerful tool to use in my work of advocacy. Mm. And that I wear so many different hats and that I have so many, you know, like I say on my intro, I know a little bit about a lot of healthcare and not a lot about that much. And I'm a storyteller. But it's interesting to me that I'm on one end of the continuum and that most people are not on the same end that I am. Mm. And this telling stories like you're talking about is hard for people. Either they don't want to brag if they feel like they have a positive story to tell and they don't Mm -hmm. want to make people feel bad because their story is pleasure and success and whatever, or they don't want to burden people because their story is of pain and loss. And it is interesting that challenge of comfort with the story. Am I making any sense? You are making sense. You are making sense. And I think the invitation to look at it from the perspective of a storyteller and say there is a, the, there's a timeline of events. Is this the story? It can be. But you can choose to tell the story in a different way. More than that, you can give yourself permission to tell the story in a different way to different people. See, I came from a family. There are no secrets. Everything is out there in your face. My default was <laughs> everything is exposed. So for me, you know, it was a journey to learn that I don't have to say everything to everyone. I can have different versions of the story. That's okay. As long as I tell myself the truth. Like I'm not bullshitting myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's a big one. That is a big one. That's a hard one, actually. Yeah, yeah. I think. It's a challenging one. Yes. It can become very uncomfortable and it can become pretty scary. I have one more question, and then you can ask one more, and then we'll wrap it up. Okay. So when you think about your personal goals, what you want from life. I guess that's a two-part question. So Mm -hmm. first part is, what do you want from life? And the second is, how does that affect the decisions you make about your health? Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Okay, so I I don't have a simple answer for that one. No, it's okay. Do we have a week? Let's meet at six in the morning for a half an hour for the next week. And this will be a very interesting conversation. But okay, pick one, like a a goal in life and then how that that impacts how you manage. I have a lot of goals, but I have more than the goals. I have a calling. Okay. To explain that, I need to go back. Okay. About 20 years ago. When I was first diagnosed, yeah, 
the night before, before I was diagnosed and I, when I was hospitalized, I had an episode that, for lack of better words, could be called clinical death. Okay. And I had a vision. All right. And I was going, okay, it's going to sound a little bit freaky, but it is what it is. I'm not judging. Mm -hmm. I'm good with that. Yeah. So I was floating down this tunnel, feeling very loved. And there was this, you know, entity at the end. And I really want to go when I really wanted to float and embrace and go to the light. It was lovely. Yeah. And that entity stopped me and said, your work is not over yet. And then I woke up and tubes and everything was beeping. And I was apparently, they saved my life. Yeah. Really, I'm serious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, So for me, this is about leaving the world in a better place when I'm gone than when I, you know, came. So that's the goal. Okay, that's the goal. Yeah. I chose to do it mostly with medical coaching, but I also do that personally. And so one thing that happened after that, that experience was that I became in a way fearless. I'm not afraid of dying. Uh-huh. I'm not afraid of pain. God knows. I've had, I'm used to pain. I know how to deal with pain. I hate it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yes. If there's one thing that I am, <laughs> there's one thing that I'm, that might frighten me is living an unfulfilled life and something happening to my daughter that, that doesn't mm-hmm. scare me. So fear did come back after I became a mother, but the meaning is that I seek to promote goodness in everything that I do. And it was also learning to be good to myself. Mm -hmm. And we talked about self-love. Yeah. Be good to myself and love myself. Um, And loving myself is not at the expense of others because, you know, self-love is not selfishness. Yes. And And when it comes to my health decisions, then, then I know that there's certain things I've learned how I like things done and I give myself permission to be the expert on my health. I'm mm-hmm. not a doctor. This is why I have a doctor. I have an amazing doctor. I love him mm-hmm. to bits. He's been such an amazing ally for me for, for over 10 years. And I have other people to assist me, but ultimately I take full responsibility. Yes. I full ownership Yeah. for the things that I know, for the things that I don't know, for asking help. Mm-hmm. And and I know that taking care of myself is another way of being aligned with my goal in order to be able to promote goodness, to leave yes. the world in slightly a better place. I, I really need to take care of myself. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks for sharing <laughs> that. Yes. If you weren't like, I don't know how far away you are, 6,000, 7,000, no, more like 10,000 miles away, whatever, I'd give you a hug. Oh, I'd give you a <laughs> hug back. Okay. Oh, yes. That was very nice. Okay. So, anything you want to ask me? There is so much that I want to ask you. One thing that I want to ask you is, you know, the medical system isn't an easy system. It's, it isn't easy on the people that work in the system. It right. isn't easy on the patients. It's not an evil system. It's a system. Systems a system. are not evil. Yeah. My My question is, do you ever get conflicted? You, you experience the system. You see all of its flaws. Yeah. it's. And then at some point you are a representative of the system. What are the places where you get conflicted? 
And and how do you resolve that? That's um, also too big of a question. And but let's take a stab at it. My my frustrations with the system have. So I've been part of the healthcare system for more than 50 years. Mm-hmm. And it's infuriating. It just, it's just, it can be so infuriating. And I'm a, I just, I'm a fixer. I want to fix things. I'm good at building systems and infrastructure, and I'm a change agent. And through much of my career, my sights were set high. And I'm not a revolutionary. I'm a person who I learn the system and I work within it. And I, yeah, and I work within it and I try to change. And I think my successes have been minor. Hmm. And now that I'm seasoned, old, whatever, <laughs> vintage, is that my, my, my goals are so much smaller. And it's like everything, but I'm, I'm actually better at all of that stuff than I've ever been. Actually, my, my friend who lives in Jerusalem, who I talk to once a week on the phone and with a group of people, one of the things she said once was, you're at the pinnacle of your career, even though I'm a retired person. And it was very loving that she said that. And it's, she's right. I can bring all of this to bear to affect really small changes. But I'm a lot better at knowing where to apply that. For example, I'm on the board of governors of something called PCORI, the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute, which you know. And I have a coach because this is a, I think this is the pinnacle. And I I don't want to mess, I don't want to blow it. I want to be effective and do whatever microscopic thing that I can do that's going to make a difference. And even though I'm full of myself and think I'm better at this than anybody, nobody stays good at what they do without coaching. So now we're back to your work, which is, hey, this is a good, now this is a great circle. And so I have a coach and it's a business and personal relationship. And I need it because to be effective, you need that outside wisdom. So, and I have no idea if I answered your question, but there is an answer. Peace. So, thank you very much for taking this time. And I think this is one of those moments of intimacy. 
And I really, I just want to thank <laughs> you for that. Well, thank I'm, you. I'm, uh, I'll have a little cry after we get. I really appreciate this conversation, and I'm thinking we should maintain this connection. And oh, I would, whatever I can do for you, you know where to find me now. Yes, I do. Yes. And vice versa. Well, thank you, my it was a dear. Pleasure. It was lovely. It was lovely. Right. I enjoyed every minute. Okay. Thank you so much. Take care. <laughs> you too. <laughs> Who says you can't make friends on Zoom? So much to welcome in this far-ranging mutual interview. I especially enjoyed telling a story about telling stories for ourselves, about ourselves, and our constituencies. Siri and I were both wary of the potholes of advice, appreciative of multi-sided dice of storytelling and clinical pictures, and full-throated canters that we are not our diagnoses or behaviors. We met at the intersection as children of families with no secrets and too many secrets. Perhaps we could use some help exploring those depths. So thank you, Master Medical Coach Siri Benarzi. Thanks to Kayla Nelson, web and social media coach, and Joey Van Leeuwen, musician and arranger. See the show notes, previous podcasts, and other resources through my website, www.health-hats.com. Please subscribe and contribute. If you like it, share it. Thanks. See you around the block. Music